Chapter 5 Jack was in a dilemma. Not only was he having trouble with a build-up of mysteriousness to his final vision of the Lavender Man bearing tidings, but now he was no longer certain that the Lavender Man would be coming anyway, with or without tidings. If Jack said a Lavender Man was coming and he turned up, that was one thing, but if he did not, that would be another again. They'd probably have me put away, he thought. They're ashamed of me enough as it is. I'm just an embarrassment to them, not being a genius. The way Mr. Bagthorpe was currently talking, it did not sound as if Uncle Parker would be crossing his threshold again for a long time to come. He actually said as much. On the other hand, Mr. Bagthorpe and Uncle Parker had so many rows that one suspected that they rather enjoyed them, and Jack himself had certainly noticed some of their interchanges turning up later pretty well word for word in Mr. Bagthorpe's television scripts. Indeed, so had Uncle Parker, though he usually affected to be too busy to watch Mr. Bagthorpe's programs, or any television at all for that matter. He said loudly and often that he regarded it as a debased and debasing medium. But during one of their rows, Uncle Parker had threatened that he would sue Mr. Bagthorpe unless he paid him a fair percentage for the dialogue he had unwittingly supplied, as anything that he, Uncle Parker, might say was copyright. There was no way of finding out what was happening at the knoll, because if Jack himself went there, then the Bagthorpes would immediately put two and two together when the Lavender Man appeared, and the whole game would be up before it got properly started. The one chance Jack did have was to make a telephone call. Even this was fraught with danger. The two telephones in the house were located in the hall and in Mr. Bagthorpe's study. The hall was little better than a public thoroughfare, and too close to Mrs. Fosdyke's HQ in the kitchen, and, of course, Mr. Bagthorpe was there in the study along with his telephone, probably making notes on his recent interchange with Uncle Parker. Headquarters. Exactly. I'll go down into the village and use the phone box there, Jack thought. Then, if Aunt Celia answers, I can put the phone straight down and keep trying till I do get Uncle Parker. No one will know who it is if I don't speak. After lunch, which was a tense, relatively silent affair, with Grandma, Grandpa, and Rosie all missing, Jack set off to the village with Zero. The walk gave Jack another chance to give Zero a pep talk, because Zero could not hope to keep out of Mr. Bagthorpe's way forever, and needed building up as much as possible before the inevitable meeting took place. Don't forget, Jack told Zero, that half the things he says he doesn't mean. He only says things to try out how they sound, in case he can use them in his scripts. Remember that. Zero's legs had now stopped shaking, and he was obviously making progress. He had had the ordinary kind of shock, rather than the delayed variety Mrs. Bagthorpe had been talking about. When he reached the village, Jack took a quick look about to see if anybody who knew him was watching. Then he went into a booth, and took Zero in as well, even though it did make things rather crowded about his feet. Jack stood with his back to the road, and dialed Uncle Parker's number. It rang for some time before the receiver was lifted, and a voice, high, clear, and unmistakably Daisy's, said, "'Hello, 13401 Daisy Parker speaking. I nearly burned the house down yesterday, today and yesterday as well. Do you want Mummy or Daddy?' Jack hastily replaced the receiver. He waited a minute or two to let Daisy get clear of the phone, then dialed again. Again, Daisy's voice replied, Hello, 13401, Daisy Parker speaking. Is who, is it whoever just rung? If not, I nearly burned the house down today and yesterday as well. If so, will you please hang on this time and don't go away like you did last time? 
Jack replaced the receiver. This time he left the booth and walked on, trying to think of a way round what looked like an impasse. The game with Daisy could go on all afternoon, he could see that. His money would run out. What could I do to scare her off, he wondered. What's she scared of? There was not, in fact, very much that Daisy was scared of. She was not half so scared of things as four-year-olds are supposed to be. He had actually heard Uncle Parker telling Mrs. Bagthorpe this. It was unnatural, he said. He had given up reading her Red Riding Hood and Jack and the Beanstalk and so on, because when he got to the bits about wolves and giants and such, she just laughed. It was no fun, he said, reading scary tales to four-year-olds who just laughed. It made you look a fool. The only thing she was scared of, apparently, was Daleks and death rays and things, and he was most certainly not having any of that rubbish in his house. He would not, he declared, be caught dead reading about Daleks and death rays. Jack pondered a few minutes, perfecting his scheme, and retraced his steps to the booth. Sure enough, it was Daisy's voice he heard. That is Daisy Parker, said Jack, interrupting her. He used a disguised voice. His acting had improved considerably in the course of the day, and the voice came out quite well. You will be exterminated. He heard a squeal at the other end of the line. We shall transmit a death ray through the telephone wire, said Jack. You are holding the telephone, and it will exterminate you. There was a really loud shriek then, followed by a clatter that nearly deafened Jack. The receiver had not been replaced, he realized, but let drop onto the stone floor of the hall. In the background he could hear Daisy squealing, and then Aunt Celia's voice, and very faintly, Jack was certain, Uncle Parker's own. He hung on in case it was he who came to the phone, but in the end it was Aunt Celia's footsteps he heard approaching, and her voice that said, "'Hello, hello, is anyone there?' Jack, elated by his dramatic success with Daisy, was tempted to threaten her with extermination too, but resisted. In any case, he told himself as he replaced the receiver, she'd probably have hysterics or something, and Uncle Parker'd murder me when he found out. Uncle Parker, for some obscure reason, loved Aunt Celia to distraction. He seemed to have a blind spot about her. Jack took Zero for another short walk, and returned yet again to the booth. Keep your fingers crossed, he told Zero, and dialed. Hello, hello, Celia Parker here. Jack banged the telephone down. At intervals of five or ten minutes, he dialed four times more. On the last two occasions, Aunt Celia was not answering very calmly. She was saying things like, Who are you? Leave me alone, leave me alone. And, I know there's someone there. I can hear you breathing. Who are you? Who? Are you human? One more time, he told Zero. His supply of money had almost run out. He waited a whole quarter of an hour before making the final call. This time, Uncle Parker's voice answered. There were no preliminaries. Look, said Uncle Parker's voice, I don't know who you are, but you are a maniac and a public nuisance. You have reduced my wife and only child to hysteria. It's me, shouted Jack, light-headed with relief. It's me, Jack. There is a law about this sort of thing, went on Uncle Parker, astoundingly. And innocent subscribers must be protected from fiends like yourself. One more call from you, and I shall call the police. Jack wondered whether he had gone mad. Look, all I want to know is, are you still coming in that lavender suit or not? 
"'And when I say I am going to do a thing,' said Uncle Parker, "'I do it. Understand?' The line went dead. Slowly Jack replaced his own receiver. "'Of course,' he thought. Aunt Celia was listening. He had to pretend it was—' "'And what was it he had said at the end? "'When I say I'm going to do a thing, I do it. "'That was it. That was his way of giving me the answer.' He pushed open the door and went out. "'Come on, Zero. He was going to try to pull in one more mysterious impression before coming out with the actual Vision One at tea-time. He found himself excited and pleased by the prospect. Things had become so lively during the past twenty-four hours that he was beginning to enjoy it, and feel let down when they slackened off. On his way across the fields he had the good fortune to pick up a couple of twigs that looked promising from the dowsing point of view. He even tried holding one out for some distance, but nothing happened. "'It's because I don't know the proper grip,' he thought. "'It's how you hold it that counts.' He hid the twigs in his wardrobe when he got home, and then went down to survey the field. Grandpa had surfaced, he noticed, but was still without his hearing aid. He was nodding over a copy of The Guardian. Mrs. Fosdyke was banging about in the kitchen, baking. "'Where's Mother?' he asked. "'Doing her problems,' Mrs. Fosdyke replied briefly. "'And don't want disturbing, I don't suppose. "'You'd think she had enough problems of her own.' Mrs. Bagthorpe had an agony column in a monthly journal under the name of Stella Bright. She got hundreds of letters every week, and some of them, she said, were really agonizing. This was partly why she had taken up yoga, to help restore her balance. She was also a magistrate in a juvenile court, and so she saw a lot of the hard side of life. Mr. Bagthorpe was always trying to pump her about her letters and her cases to see if he could get some good material for his scripts, but she refused to be drawn. 